1 Peter chapter 4, beginning in verse 14, through the end of the chapter, If ye be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are ye, for the Spirit of glory and of God resteth upon you. On their part he is evil spoken of, but on your part he is glorified. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, or as a thief, or as an evildoer, or as a busybody in other men's matters. Yet if any man suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God on this behalf. For the time has come that judgment must begin at the house of God. And if first begin at us, what shall the end be of them that obey not the gospel of God? And if the righteous scarcely be saved, where shall the ungodly and the sinner appear? Wherefore, let them that suffer according to the will of God commit the keeping of their souls to Him in well-doing as unto a faithful Creator. Even though we read all of those verses, I want to center my message this morning on one particular part of the text. And I'll give you that verse in just a moment. But we want to look at the context. You know, when you're studying the Bible, you need to understand the context. A lot of verses get taken out of their context. And sometimes even unscriptural religions are started by taking verses out of their context. So we need to keep everything in its context. Peter is writing to believers. He's encouraging them to be faithful to God, even in the light of persecution. I think some of the things that are happening in our country today and some of the things that have happened, folks, are warning signs to us that they may be used against God's true churches and against God's true people. Look at verses 1 and 2, first of all, in this fourth chapter. He says, For as much then as Christ hath suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves likewise with the same mind, the mind of Christ. For he that hath suffered in the flesh hath ceased from sin, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh to the lusts of men, but to the will of God. You get what he's saying? If you're saved, you ought to live like Christ. If you're saved, you ought to have the mind of Christ. Look at verse 4. It talks about not running with the world. They think it's strange that you run not with them to the same excess of riot. I'm a child of God. I can't live. I can't do the things I did before I was saved. I can't live like I lived before I came to know Christ the Savior. Verse 7 is a warning. But the end of all things is at hand. So he's talking about the end of time, the end of things. He's talking about the persecution that's going to come. Remember, the Apostle Paul said, Yea, all who will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. You don't have to go out and look for it. You just live for Christ and you'll, you'll get it. But the end of all things is at hand. Be ye therefore sober, serious-minded, and watch unto prayer. There's nothing wrong with laughing. There's nothing wrong with smiling. I pastored a lady who wouldn't smile in the church house. I don't know. She thought it was wrong, I guess. Listen, when you got this guy right here for a pastor, you're going to have to do some smiling. You're going to have to do some laughing, I guarantee you. I was listening to a preacher the other day, and this is one of my Facebook musings. He talked about how before he was saved, he was a rock musician, professional rock musician. And so I sent him a message. I said, I was a rock music DJ for six and a half years. So I'm glad that God took us out of rock and put us on the rock, right? <laughs> But sometimes that DJ personality comes out, I guess, is what happens. I don't know. It's okay to be, to smile and to laugh, but we need to be serious-minded about when it comes to the things of God and the things of Christ. Amen. And he says, watch unto prayer. Verses 12 and 14 instruct us to endure persecution. You know, some can endure anything but persecution. 
Sin can endure anything but ridicule, but he says we need to be willing to endure it with rejoicing. You know why you ought to endure persecution with rejoicing? Because we're participating in Christ's sufferings. We're having fellowship, in, and that's what fellowship is, joint participation in Christ's sufferings. That's what Paul desired. You look at Philippians chapter 3, verse 10. He said, I want to know him in the fellowship of his sufferings. Okay? And then, not only do we fellowship in his sufferings, he said, when that happens, for the spirit of glory and of God resteth upon you. While the world speaks evil of Christ, while the world speaks evil of the Lord's churches, while the world speaks evil of God's people, even in persecution, we can bring God glory Amen. if we'll live for him. Then verses 15 and 16, he says this, don't suffer because you deserve it. Okay. Don't, and look at the category he says. Look at where he places these things. Don't suffer as a murderer or as a thief. Well, we understand that. Or as an evildoer. We understand that. Or as a busybody in other men's matters. Woo, that sort of hits home sometimes, doesn't it? You like to talk about other people. They're a good conversation topic, but we really shouldn't do that. But he says, don't suffer because you deserve it. If you suffer as a child of God, if you suffer as a Christian, rejoice in it. If you suffer because you deserve it, don't rejoice in that. So we have this context of faithful living, maintaining a sanctified life, enduring ridicule for the Lord. And then Peter reminds us, judgment is coming. Judgment is coming. You look at verse 17. This is the one I want to, and just a phrase in this verse, for the time is come that judgment must begin at the house of God. I can guarantee you this by the word of God that every man, woman, boy, and girl, one of these days is going to come face to face with God in judgment. Amen. There is no escaping it. The saved will stand before the judgment seat of Christ and the scripture says in 2 Corinthians 5 that we'll give an account of things done in the flesh. Whether they be good or bad, we're going to account to the Lord. The lost will come before the great white throne judgment of God not to have their works judged whether they were good or bad but to hear this, depart from me, I never knew you, ye that work iniquity. But everybody is coming to the point of facing judgment. And the scripture says judgment is going to begin where? At the house of God. Okay? And notice that he says this. The time has come that judgment must begin at the house of God. Now that word time is not the usual word for time, chronos. But this word for time is the word that refers to a proper place. A particular instance. And it talked about not only those things, but it talks about a suitable place. Where is the best place for judgment to begin? God says at the house of God. Amen. Well, somebody will say, well, what's the house of God? Well, I'm glad you asked. We know what the house of God is. First Timothy. First Timothy chapter 3, verse 15. But if I tarry long that thou mayest know that thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, listen to this, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. Now he says a couple of things, by the way, that I want to mention. A pillar talks about a column. And many of these columns, because it gave support. And many of these columns were ornate. They had a beauty to them. And so that just tells me that the Lord's churches ought to support the truth, but at the same time we ought to give a beauty to the truth. We ought to be decorative to the truth. And ground talks about a foundation. That's what the house rests on, okay? 
Jesus is our foundation, but as far as the truth is concerned, as a church, we have a responsibility of being the ground of the truth. The truth rests here. The truth is supported here. The truth is given a beauty here as we stand for the truth. 1 Peter chapter 2, 5. Ye also as lively stones are built up a spiritual house. Do you ever think about church? Oh, I'm going to church. Why not say I'm going to the spiritual house today? I'm, I'm a part of the spiritual house actually. You know, is what we ought to say. Church is where we come to worship God. The building is not the church. The body is the church. And when we come here into this building to worship God. But he says you're as lively stones are built up a spiritual house. Listen to this, a holy priesthood. I believe the Bible teaches the high priesthood of Jesus Christ, the priesthood of individual believers, and to do what? To offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Peter's talking about the body. He's not talking about the building. And he says three things about this body. A New Testament church is a spiritual house. If you just look back over to the second chapter of the book of Ephesians for just a brief moment. Ephesians chapter 2 beginning in verse 19. Now therefore you are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto an holy temple in the Lord, in whom ye also are builded together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. God lives in this church through his Spirit. That's what the Word of God says. He doesn't live in this building. This building couldn't contain God. God indwells us through His Holy Spirit. So a New Testament church is a spiritual house. And we as members make up a holy priesthood. Holy means sanctified. It means set apart. And Hebrews 13 says, we're to, and Peter does too, that we're to offer spiritual sacrifices. Well, what are spiritual sacrifices? Go into the 13th chapter of Hebrews. We're not going to take the time to turn there. But one of the things he says is our praise the fruit of our lips, singing these songs of praise. Do you realize you just made a sacrifice? Amen. You sang praises to God. That's a spiritual sacrifice. He talked about our, our giving and our working together and our sharing and the offering, the support of the church. Every time an offering plate is passed or you give into the church, whether it's in Sunday school, in here, wherever it is, you know what? You're making a sacrifice, a spiritual sacrifice to God. Don't think it is material. It is a spiritual sacrifice to God. And then he says in Hebrews 10 that we have a high priest over this house of God. And he's named in chapter 4, verse 14 of the book of Hebrews, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So when he talks about judgment beginning at the house of God, it's going to start right here, folks. And you know what I believe? What I'll suggest to you is that today... Some of the Lord's churches may already be being judged by Him. Amen. God will judge His churches. Sometimes God allows the fruit of our actions or the fruit of our inactions to be the punishment or the judgment for those actions. Now we know James 4.17, To him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not to him, it is what? It is sin. So when we don't do what we know we should do, God's Word says it is sin. Now, what do we see in America today? We're seeing churches with low attendance. Now, I know there are some that have big attendance, but I tell you what, some of these mega churches that have thousands and thousands on Sunday morning, you come back on Sunday night. 
if they have services at all. You look at them on Wednesday nights, if they have services at all, and they have virtually no one there. That tells me a little bit about Sunday morning too. But here's what we're saying is that we have churches because they're, I think being judged by God in many ways, in some ways, because they don't have faithful members, they're low in attendance. And there are churches today with few people, if any, being saved. Okay? Just remember, when was the last time we baptized somebody? I told you earlier, now this is my prayer. I had opportunity. And let me just share this. I shared it with the Sunday school class, but I was meeting with this young man and I just said, prayed a prayer sort of, you know, in my head, in my heart. I said, Lord, give me an opportunity to witness to this young man. And in our conversation, he says, well, I hope to, I hope to get old enough to see my children grow up, my grandchildren before I meet the Lord. I said, Lord, you gave me an open door, didn't you? You pray for an open door, you better go through that open door. And he, he gave it. And so I used that opportunity to ask him if he was saved, to tell him how to be saved, to invite him to come and be with us. But see, it, you don't have to sit down with somebody in some hour-long attempt to, you know, just bombard them with scriptures and show them how to be saved. Tell them how to be saved. You know how to be saved. Tell them how to be saved. Amen. I wasn't supposed to get off on that one. Those who have copies of my outline, you know, that uh, that's not in there. So we're going to move to the next one now. Now, churches with membership that has little, if any, commitment to Christ. The work of the church, the witnessing, the carrying the gospel in the world. Well, that's the staff's job. That's the pastor's job. That's the deacon's job. Who was the great commission given to? Not to the apostles, not to individuals, but to the Lord's churches. And who makes up the Lord's churches? Each and every one of us in this church who has placed our membership, led by God, placed our membership in this church. It's our responsibility, okay? And listen to what the Lord says to other of his churches. You just go to the book of Revelation. And God says, repent or else. Amen. Repent or else. See, we talk about revival today. I told the Sunday school class that's an Old Testament word. Make alive again. The New Testament word is repent. He says to Ephesus, repent or else I will come unto thee and remove thy candlestick. You won't be operating as one of my churches anymore. You may assemble, you may sing, you may do all of those things, but if I remove your candlestick, you're done. Pergamos, this is a church that tried to be married to the Lord and married to the world at the same time. He said, I'll come. And they had false teachers in the church. And he said, I'll come to you and fight against them. Guess where the Lord's going to bring the battle? Right out in his church. Okay. Thyatira had Jezebel teaching. I will cast her into a bed with them that commit adultery with her into great tribulation, except they repent of their deeds. He's promising judgment. Sardis, the church that had a name to be alive but was dead. Remember that church? I will come on thee as a thief. You know, a thief doesn't call ahead and say, hey, I want to make an appointment to break into your house tonight. What does a thief do? He comes when you're not expecting it and he breaks into your house. In Laodicea, the lukewarm church, what did the Lord say? I will spew you out of my mouth. God promises judgment upon his churches. So I want to give you, try to do it very briefly, seven things that God may be judging in his churches today as he prepares to clean house in his churches. And the very first one is one I called unlived Morality. 
Unlived morality. What are you talking about? Well, God's word tells us how we should live individually and as a church. 2 Timothy 2.19. Nevertheless, the foundation of God standeth sure, having this seal. The Lord knoweth them that are his. And look at this. And let every one that nameth the name of Christ depart from iniquity. You know what iniquity is? It's the contrary to doing right. In fact, the definition of it says wrong, any impropriety. Okay? 1 John chapter 5, John says all unrighteousness is sin. Anything that is not righteous. Well, well what is unrighteousness? Moral wrongfulness of character of life and or act. Some have defined morality this way. Principles concerning the distinction between right and wrong are good and bad behavior. Webster says, gives the synonym virtue. 2 Peter chapter 1 verse 5 and says, Beside this giving all diligence add to your faith. What? Virtue. Virtue. Virtue talks about superiority in every respect. In a moral sense, it's that which gives man his worth. Virtue. It gives him his efficiency. gives him moral excellence. That's what virtue is. We need to be virtuous people. And have we seen in recent weeks from Ephesians 5, what does the Lord desire of his churches? A glorious church not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. That word blemish means blame, shame, stain, disgrace. There should be nothing in this church that disgraces the Lord Jesus Christ. And in fact, the members of this church should be so, live such pure lives that the world would have to lie to be able to say of us there's too many hypocrites in that church. Amen. Sadly, in many of the Lord's churches, as Dr. Vince Havner once wrote, what started out as a sheepfold has turned into a zoo. Amen. Everybody gets in and nobody gets out. We don't discipline ourselves. We need to live the morality, the sanctification we profess to believe and that we know the Bible to teach. Number two, unholy mergers. What do you mean unholy mergers? Well, let's listen to 2 Corinthians chapter 6 for just a moment first. Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers, for what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness, and what communion hath light with darkness? And what concord hath Christ with Belial, or what part hath he that believeth with an infidel? And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God. As God hath said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you. We're talking about churches turning to worldliness and worldly attractions to draw people into them. And that's what a lot of churches are doing today. There's some churches you visit, you don't know if you've been to a worship service or a rock concert. This one preacher I started listening to was telling a story about going into a store and there stood a man. He said, this was one of these guys. He's got leather all over his body. And he said, what's not covered by leather is either covered by tattoos or hair. You know, he's just, he had bandanas around his knees. He had bandanas. I mean, he just looks like one of these real tough biker dudes. And he said, he's not the kind of guy you want to cross. That's what he looks like. He said, I handed him a church tract. He said, what's this? The preacher said, it's a church tract. The guy looked at him and said, I went to church once. He said, I couldn't tell whether I was at church or at a Pink Floyd concert. That's sad, folks. Here's a man who wanted to go to church, and he goes to church, and when he comes away, he says, I don't even know that I've been to church. 
I think I've been at a, a rock music concert. Churches have become entertainment oriented and today I suspect it's more for the worshipers than for the one who's supposed to be worshiped. You know, when we come together to worship God, he is the audience. Amen. We are the performers, okay? God is watching us. He's observing us. And if we entertain ourselves, we're not really doing what God would have us to do. And that's what a lot of churches are doing. They're entertaining themselves. And it doesn't bring glory to the one who's supposed to be worshiped. We're here to worship God. We hear things like this. Oh, we have to stay contemporary if we want to attract people. Well, you know, folks, the gospel has attracted folks and saved folks for over 2,000 years now. Amen. Why do we need to try to dress it up in something that looks like the world? Why do we need to try to make it pretty for the world? Remember what I said? The scripture says that nobody seeks after God and their church is seeking seekers. Well, you got to give something that's not God if you're going to get the seekers. No, we, we just present the gospel of Jesus Christ. I like this line. God, this is Dr. George Alquist said this. God does not keep up with the times. God doesn't follow the trends. God's not watching this world and saying, well, what's hip this week? I'll get some folks to do that. That's not God, folks. That's the world acting. And his churches shouldn't try to keep up with the times either. That's the problem in churches today. There's no real worship going on because they're trying to be entertaining. They're trying to keep up with the times. It is an insult to a holy God to say that his word is not sufficient to draw people to church and to draw them to Christ. Amen. That insults God. We need to learn a lesson today from the Apostle Paul. You know what he said in Romans chapter 1, verse 16? For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Amen. I think there are some churches and some preachers that are ashamed of the gospel. They don't want to preach it. They want to try anything else but not preach the gospel. He said, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. I'll say again by their actions, some churches act like they're ashamed to be associated with God and ashamed of the gospel. But what did God say through Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 21? It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. It doesn't say he, it pleased God by the rock concert or the entertainment medium or whatever else you want to name to save them. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching. The world calls it foolishness. God doesn't call it foolishness. The world calls it foolishness. In fact, the world would say what I'm doing right now and the fact that you're sitting there listening to it is the most foolish thing you can do on a Sunday morning. You ought to be sleeping in. You ought to be having brunch. You ought to be having a good time. And to come and hear some preacher stand in a pulpit and take a book that's thousands of years old and preach a message out of it, well, that's foolish, the world says. God says, yeah, but I'll use that to save folks. I'll use that to get the gospel message to people. 1 John chapter 2, we know verses 15 and 16, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life is not of the Father. It's of the world. So unholy mergers, trying to merge with the world to draw people into church. 
And right along with that, and I include it in sort of in this unscriptural methods. God has a plan. God has a program. God has a way. And it's mentioned. It's given to us in Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20, Acts 1, 8. I can name several other verses of scripture. Mark 16, 15. What is the way that God has to grow his churches and to spread the gospel? Go ye therefore. As you go, in your going. Think about the example I gave you just a moment ago. I didn't just say, oh, I'm going to go out and go soul winning today. I was, just was going to be in a conversation with somebody and I asked God to open the door, an opportunity, and God did that and I took advantage of the opportunity. That's all you have to do. Some people, we've got to, we've got to organize. I'm going to talk about that in just a few moments. But gimmicks and games and giveaways are not a part of God's plans. I've heard of churches in the past that have given away new cars. And not to the pastor either. You come to church and if you happen to find the lucky key under where you're sitting, you know, you win a car. I tell you what, the car we might be able to afford to give away wouldn't be a brand new one, would it, in these days? Some churches use gospel entertainers. I mean, that's their job. That's their profession. We're entertainers, but we don't want to be worldly entertainers. We're going to be gospel entertainers. And we'll, we'll hire these gospel entertainers to come in, put on a show. And while you're here, we're going to sneak the gospel in on you, right? People come for, to be entertained for these gospel entertainers. You're not going to do much getting the gospel to them. That's the world's method for drawing a crowd. I guarantee you, once the games are over, once the gimmicks are done, once the concert is finished, people are going to go away. I have watched people, and I'm not against doing things with our kids and having them do little plays and so forth. That's wonderful. We're teaching our children, and we may be drawing some parents into a service that might not usually come, but I have watched people, as soon as the Christmas skit is over, grab their children and leave because the preacher's fixing to get up and give a devotional. I have watched people at a vacation Bible school closing. Once their children get their certificate, man, we're going to yank him out of there because that preacher's going to have something to say. And he might talk about salvation. He might talk about me being lost. He might talk about how I need Christ as Savior. And so I, gotta get, I don't want to hear that, so I've got to get the kids out of there before he says that. I have seen it with my own eyes. And I tell you what, when the giveaways are gone, the people will be gone. Jesus did not perform miracles and feed people to draw a crowd, but when he did these things, the masses followed him. But, John chapter 6, verse 53, when he said, except you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you, what did the crowd do? They went away. They left. Hey, the free food's fine. Watching the miracles is fine. We don't want to hear the word of God. And it's the same way today. You know, there are people who say you've got to market your church. That's the thing today, marketing the church. You know what marketing is? Marketing is taking a poll, finding out what people like, and then offering that to them in a church setting. That's not what the Lord told us to do. Now, it's okay to advertise. Advertise says, look, we're here we welcome everybody. We'd love to have you come. 
be with us. We want you in our services. We invite you to come. That's advertising. But we don't market the Lord. We don't market the gospel. We don't market the Lord's churches. And so that's number three. Number four. I'm trying to just move right on through this. Unconcerned members. Uh-oh. <laughs> I quit talking about them now having a, and I'm talking about us now. Unconcerned members. And I thought this was a pretty good example of an unconcerned member. And his name is Peter. And after the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord, we find him with the other apostles. And what did Peter say? I go a fishing. Now that's not a day trip, just a little fishing venture out for a day or back. Peter said, I'm going back to the fishing business. Been real, been fun, guys. But you know what? It's over. And I'm just going to go back to doing what I was doing. It doesn't matter that Jesus had called Peter to be a fisher of men. It didn't matter that Jesus had named him as an apostle and called him to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. It didn't matter to Peter that the Lord had given his commission to that church at Jerusalem of which Peter was a member and in fact a pastor of that church. I think he had given up. I think he was just unconcerned and he just said, well, you know, we, we thought more would come of this, but he's been crucified. Yes, he rose again, but... You know, I, I just don't know what we're going to do. I just see Peter in sort of that frame of mind. Because you have to remember, Peter's not converted yet. He's saved. Remember what Jesus said to him? When thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. Well, I'm going back to the fishing business and strengthen the brethren. I quit isn't strengthening the brethren. And I'm going to tell you, most of the membership of this church, and I think of most churches today, is unconcerned. They don't care. Hey, y'all, fine. Y'all go meet, visit, have a good time, worship the Lord. I've got other things to do. I've got things that are more important to do than to show up and worship God. I think I put this on the church's Facebook page. After all Christ has done for you, how could you quit him now? Amen. I mean, how could you, Lord, I want your salvation. Lord, I want your assurance of eternal life. I don't want to do anything for you. Not even show up when your church meets to worship you, but I want to enjoy all of the benefits that you can give to me. You know what? Some members of the Lord's churches today, no, I'm going to say some members of this church, preacher, getting on dangerous ground now. I know it. I love it. Some members of this church need to have a face-to-face -face meeting with Jesus just like Peter did in John 21, verses 15 through 17. What are you talking about, preacher? Well, let me say this first. About three-fourths of the members of the average church today are not even concerned enough to show up on a Sunday morning, much less a Sunday night or a Wednesday night. Jesus looked at Peter and said, Peter, do you love me? Do you have a sacrificial love for me? And Lord, you know I'm fond of you. Peter, do you have a sacrificial love for me? Lord, you know I'm fond of it. Second time. Third time, Peter, you're fond of me. Lord, you know I love you. Peter was converted. And I think it was at that point that Peter was converted. And I'm going to tell you this. The Lord may be looking at you and he may be looking at me today and asking us, do you love me?
Do you really have a self-sacrificing love for me or do you love other things as much or more than you love me? And what is our answer? Lord, I'm fond of you. I'm fond of, I'll show up on a Sunday, Lord, and I'll be fond of you and I'll do all these things, uh, but don't ask me to sacrifice. Or would it be, Lord, you know my heart. And Lord, you know I have a self-sacrificing love for you. Went to bed last night. I asked Joni last night when we went to bed. I said, why is it on Saturday night I don't want to go to bed and go to sleep? I just don't. I'm lying there in bed. And I said, Lord, I want to be a better preacher. I've already asked him to make me an Elijah. But I want to be better. For his glory. And for the good of this church. And I'm going to say this. If you're an unconcerned and absent member of this church, I'm going to pray that the Lord will look at you the way he looked at Peter after Peter denied him that third time. And it caused Peter to go out and weep bitterly, the scripture says. I'm praying that, that the Lord would just do that. Because we need him to get a hold of some of our folks, don't we? You don't have to say amen to that. I'll take credit for it. I'll take blame for it. But that he would just look at them and say, like you did to Peter, do you have a real self-sacrificing love for me? Number five, the unshared witness. What's the Lord's instruction to us? Mark 16, 15, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Acts 1, 8, you shall be witnesses unto me. I mentioned Matthew 28. Uh, as you go, disciple all nations. We like to quote Romans chapter 10, verse 13, which says, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved, don't we? Well, we'll tell somebody that. Who's, hey, if you just call on Jesus, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. What does verse 14 say? How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher. We're not talking about a preacher like I'm doing right now. This idea of preacher is a, like a public crier, a town crier, somebody who will just go out and spread the news, the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. How's anybody ever going to be saved? See, if God's people don't witness, who's going to do it? Amen. Will CNN do it? <laughs> okay, for those of you who like Fox, will Fox do it? Well, MSNBC, CNBC, all the NBCs and all the mass media, are they going to witness of Christ? No. And Hollywood may have some quote unquote Christian movies, but I'm going to tell you, they're straight out of the pits of hell. Amen. Because they add Hollywood into them. I was hearing about one, I think it was the uh, greatest story ever told. They included a fictional character. I've forgotten his name. They included a fictional character in that. The passion of the Christ, there were some things that were twisted in that. Listen, they're not interested in giving the gospel and seeing people saved. You know what they're interested in? Money. And if it'll draw people to the box office and we'll make money off of it, we can even get some of those quote unquote Christians to show up. Listen to Ezekiel chapter 3. And he says something like this also in Ezekiel chapter 33. But Ezekiel chapter 3 verse 18 and verse 19. When I say unto the wicked thou shalt surely die and thou givest him not warning nor speakest to warn the wicked from his wicked way to save his life. The same wicked man shall die in his iniquity but his blood will I require at thy hand. What did he say? What did God say to Ezekiel? What's God saying to us? If you don't witness and that person dies lost, guess what? 
I've told you, I've got at least two that I know of that have died that I had opportunity to witness to and didn't. I believe, you know, I mentioned the judgment seat of Christ. I believe I'm going to deal with that one of these days. Verse 19 says, Yet if thou warn the wicked, and he turn not from his wickedness, nor his wicked way, he shall die in his iniquity, but thou hast delivered thy soul. They won't listen to me. They won't, pay they won't accept Christ if I witness. That's okay. Just witness. If nothing else, you're clearing yourself. You can go before God and say, Lord, I witnessed. You stand before the judgment seat of Christ and say, Lord, I witnessed. Why are churches not growing? Why do polls reveal that fewer and fewer in America believe in God? Why are so many young people today turning to the occult and to Satanism and to atheism? It is because God's people in the Lord's churches are not doing this one thing. And haven't been, let's not just blame our generation, haven't been for generations. Not trying to pass the buck, just trying to speak the truth. That one simple command, ye shall be witnesses unto me, go ye therefore. If God's people don't get busy witnessing, folks, in a few more years, this nation will be totally given over to Satanism, demonism, atheism, socialism, paganism, and every other ism you can think of. And my children and my grandchildren are going to have to live in that kind of a nation. Amen. And yours too. We better get busy. Number six, unbent knees. We had an extra prayer this morning. I don't know if it's because of this. Brother Rick always gets the uh, outline or the PowerPoint anyway. I don't know whether he plans the songs or not. I don't care. I mean, I do care, but you know, you understand what I'm saying, Brother Rick? Okay. I just didn't want to hurt his feelings this morning. I mean, I love that brother. Love him in the Lord. But unbent knees, we're talking about rarely, if ever, bending our knees and bowing our hearts in prayer before God. How often do we pray? See, I agree with Brother Rick, and he and I, we're on the same page on this. He said, we don't pray enough in these services, and you're right, brother, we don't. And that's why we had an extra prayer this morning. And as far as I'm concerned, we can do it every Sunday morning. You can't pray too much. You can pray too little. But you can't pray too much. In Luke 19, 46, Jesus said it's written that my house should be a house of prayer. I told you, I don't ever remember going to a Wednesday night prayer meeting, but I heard they used to have them. We've changed it to Wednesday night Bible study or midweek services, that sort of thing these days. But they used to actually have prayer meetings on Wednesday night. That must have been fantastic. One of the weaknesses of the Lord's churches today is that there's a lot more organizing than there is agonizing in prayer. We want to organize everything. We need to agonize in prayer. Jesus is our example. Jesus prayed before he called the 12 apostles. Jesus prayed before he fed the 5,000. Jesus prayed before he went to the cross. Jesus prayed while he was on the cross. While he was living in this flesh, he would get away from everybody and go pray and talk to the Father. Jesus prayed and he taught us to pray. And he even taught us how to pray in what we call the model prayer. <coughs> Prayer's the strength of the church, folks. Prayer was the strength of the Jerusalem church. I love the fourth chapter of Acts. Well, Acts 1.14 says this. They continued with one accord in prayer and supplication. That's the church at Jerusalem. You know how to have a united church? Continue in prayer and supplication. 
You know, when you're together and praying, you can't be mad at your brother and have an effect, or sister and have an effect. We don't have that here, but I just want to add that and have an effective prayer life and being out of sorts, out of fellowship with a brother or sister in Christ. When Peter and John were arrested, Acts chapter 4, it says the church prayed this way, And now, Lord, behold their threatenings and grant unto thy servants that with all boldness they may speak thy word. In the light of persecution, in the midst of persecution, they prayed for the very thing that got them persecuted. Amen. Lord, give us some boldness. We need more boldness. Boldness got you in trouble. That's okay. We need more boldness. And they prayed for that boldness. And then verse 31 in Acts chapter 4, you talk about a prayer meeting. Verse 31 says this, the place where they were, the place was shaken where they were assembled together and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they spake the word of God with boldness. They had such a prayer meeting. I believe God literally shook the building they were in. It may have been one of those tremors they have over there. I don't know. But wouldn't you love to have a prayer meeting like that? Amen. Just up here and we're all praying and, you know, loving one another and loving God and all of those. And all of a sudden this, this old building just starts shaking. I don't know how well it's put together. <laughs> Some of the things I've seen makes me wonder at times. But, you know, just shake this building, Lord. Shake not just the building. Shake the church, Lord. Amen. Shake us up. Wake us up. And by the way, they spake the word with boldness. God answered their prayer for boldness. When Peter was imprisoned by Herod in Acts chapter 12, prayer was made without ceasing, earnestly, continually by the church unto God for him. And what happened? <laughs> Holy Spirit, God, an angel, led him out of that prison. And then he went to where they'd been praying and they wouldn't let him in because they were afraid it was his ghost. Hey, look, if you're going to pray for something, expect God to answer it. Don't pray for me to get out of jail for preaching the gospel. And then when I show up, say, well, it's not you. No, trust God in our prayer. That's what we've got to, what does James 1 say? If you waver, you're like what? You're like the waves of the sea. I got to hurry. I'd, we won't keep going. God wants to bless his churches. He wants us to pray but he may be withholding blessings because we're not praying. James chapter 4 says what? You have not because you ask not. On a board back in the fellowship hall where we have our adult Sunday school class, there's written three things. I think it's three. Circled in red that we, we've got names of people we're praying for, but these three things. What are we praying for? For God to send us visitors. We're praying that God would just give us full commitment on the part of every member of this church. And we're praying that God will keep Satan from causing, ever causing any problems in this church. Amen. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but how many of you have prayed for that recently? Don't raise your hands. I don't, I don't want to know. I don't want to be exalted and I don't want to be disappointed. Okay, so we just don't raise your hand. And number seven, unconfessed misconduct. What do you mean unconfessed misconduct? It's unconfessed sin. You know, we have a nice way of calling sin everything in the world except sin today. 
1 John chapter 3, verse 4, Whosoever committeth sin transgresseth also the law, for sin is a transgression of the law. Sin, transgress means to walk across. Sin is just walking across the Word of God. I know what the Bible says, but here's what I'm going to do. I know the Bible says I need to repent, but I don't think I need to repent. I know the Bible says I ought to get serious about serving God. I don't want to get serious about serving God. I'm just going to walk across the Word of God. And many churches and many pastors today are more concerned about offending the culture and not offending society than they are about offending a righteous and holy God. I shared this on Facebook the other day. Some of you saw it. When the Lord judges us, he's not going to ask, well, what was the culture doing? Hmm? What were they doing? What, what did the culture say? No, God is going to judge us not based on the culture, but he's going to judge us based on his word. And we better be right. Sin, like I said, it's called everything in the world except sin. It's called an illness. So the sinning person needs a doctor, right? It's called a mental problem, so the one sinning needs a therapist. It's called a mistake, so you know you got to be understanding, right? But in reality, sin is sin. And it needs to be confessed to God and it needs to have God forgive it. 1 John 1 verse 8, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Verse 10, if we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word's not in us. I don't need to repent, preacher. I don't say, whoa, watch it. Confess your sin to God. Let him clean you up. Confess your faults, James 5, 16. Confess your faults, that's your failures, your failing of righteousness one to another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. We don't pray enough. I don't know how much you pray in your personal life. I'm not with you all the time. And sometimes you can pray and not make a sound, right? We pray in our hearts. And isn't it wonderful we have the Holy Spirit indwelling us who takes that prayer and takes it to God and God knows our prayer and God knows what we need. And, you know, He'll grant those according to His wisdom, according to His mercy, according to His grace. Verse 17 continues this way and we're going to wrap up with this. Verse 17 continues by asking, If judgment first began at us, what shall be the end of them that obey not the gospel of God? Where shall the ungodly and the sinner appear What's going to happen to the world? He says righteous scarcely be saved. You know how we're scarcely saved? It's very narrow. It's by one man. Jesus. And had he not come and shed his blood, we wouldn't even be saved. We're not saved because we're in church. We're not saved because we've been baptized. We're saved because we at one point in our lives we realized that we were sinners separated from God by our sin nature that we were born with. And we turn to God in repentance and ask Him to save us. By faith applied the blood of Jesus and God saved us. Amen. And if we had not lived to that point where we realized the need to be saved, we might be well be in hell right now. Okay? If the righteous scarcely be saved, what's going to happen to the world? What's going to happen to those who don't listen to the gospel and listen to the word of God. Well, Psalm 9:17 says this, the wicked shall be turned into hell. And by the way, it says in all the nations that forget God, pray for the United States of America. Amen. Just pray. 
I believe God's allowing churches today to reap the fruit of their own activity or inactivity as a part of their judgment. Low attendance, little commitment, stagnant growth. Just all reveals whether we're obeying Him or not. Do you believe that God would bless a church that is working earnestly and living for Him and praying? Amen. I believe He would. Churches today are closing their doors. Pastors are discouraged. I guarantee you that. Been there, all right? Church members feel defeated. And we are watching as our once God-blessed America slowly and even more rapidly today slips into the trash bin of nations that forgot God, folks. I want the church of my membership, I want the church that I pastor to be blessed by God. I want God to add to our number. I want God to grow us. He knows how big we need to be and He knows who needs to be here and I understand that. But I do not want us to be guilty of unlived morality. I don't want us to be guilty of unholy mergers or unscriptural methods or unconcerned members. I don't want us to be guilty of an unshared witness or unbent knees or unconfessed misconduct, sin, because I know if we are guilty of these things, folks, God cannot and God will not bless us. You know, a dirty vessel can't be used of God. And I think that applies individually and I think that can apply as a church. If a church isn't what it should be, God can't use it. We sing that song, Showers of Blessings. I always think about that song when I get to a point like this. We sing that song, Showers of Blessings. And one of the lines is, Mercy drops round us are falling. Oh, every once in a while we'll see one or two saved or God add one or two to the church. Those are mercy drops. But for the showers, we plead. And you know how it's rained around here sometimes recently? I mean, it's just like the Lord turned on the faucet, <laughs> you know, and whoosh. That's what I want in God's blessings for this church.